Take your Bible and find Acts chapter 16, but we're also going to go to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. But Acts chapter 16, Ezekiel 28, and Isaiah 14. I read a story from a man who's an evangelical pastor. I believe he's in Oklahoma. It was from his college days as a new believer. And he and his friends formed a Bible study, and they invited a guy he described as a bit odd and kind of dark in nature. At the end, they gathered in a circle to pray, and they were holding hands, and the odd guy and the guy who's now a pastor were holding hands. Someone in the circle was praying, and the man who's now a pastor decided to silently pray for the odd guy next to him. And he prayed something like this. He said, Lord, you know this guy is kind of unusual. I pray that you would help him. And suddenly that guy pulled his hand away from him and said, don't pray for me. Now remember, he was praying silently. So he said, and I'm quoting, I did the natural thing in the middle of a prayer meeting. I lied to him. (laughs) I lied, bold face. And I said, I'm not praying for you. I don't know what you're talking about. So the prayer time continued. And he silently prayed again, Lord, I don't know what's going on here, but I pray you'd help this man. And he stopped him again and said, I told you, stop praying for me. He said, I, I didn't, wasn't praying for you. He said, I lied a second time. <laughs> if, if you're going to lie, do it in a prayer meeting? No, not really, but... So they start to pray a third time, and he prayed silently again, and this time he said the man grabbed his hand violently, and he said, I told you, stop praying for me, and he spit in his face. Well, his response was to punch him in the chest, which knocked him to the ground. On the ground, he started making unusual noises, and one of the men in the prayer circle came over and said, come out of that guy in the name of Jesus, and he started praying. The guy on the ground made some more unusual noises. He said, then there was a puff sound, and he was fine. They got him up and they asked him if he remembered what happened, including spitting in the man's face. He didn't remember a thing. Demonic possession is real. Demonic attacks are real. And I don't want to sound melodramatic, but I don't remember ever experiencing more spiritual warfare in the pulpit in my life than on Sunday, June 11th. I became hesitant over what to say. I was concerned, is this too negative? Is this going to create fear? I was distracted, unsure, even a bit fearful myself. Is this glorifying God? Am I saying the right thing? I've never experienced anything like that in the pulpit before. I can't prove it, but I think it was spiritual warfare. Recently, right here, in a span of about eight days, I heard two salvation testimonies that included deliverance from the satanic and the occult. And then I just very briefly talked to two other people here, and they shared with me their experience about satanic attacks. And today we see occultism on the rise, horoscopes are back in vogue, and then there's the question raised by the increasing evidence of UFOs and aliens. And I'll give you my opinion, I think those are demonic manifestations, and somebody's getting ready to write me an email right now and tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) And that's okay, I probably am. But let's read these verses in Acts. We'll go to other verses as well. But I want to talk to you this morning about being an unshakable believer, standing against satanic attack. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Paul wrote, And it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, 
a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at the very moment. Now I want to make one correction. I said Paul wrote that. Luke wrote that, just for the record. If you're new in the faith you might wonder where Satan come from, so I came from. So I want you to consider Satan's origin. He is a created being. Look, if you will, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. The description is of the king of Tyre, but in the middle of the verse, the object of the description completely changes. Look in the middle of verse 12. It says, you had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Satan is not ugly. The Bible says he appears as an angel of light. Then verse 13, he says, The day you were created, Satan did not create himself. God created him as an angel. Verse 14, he said, You are the anointed cherub who covers. In the Old Testament, cherubim, the plural of cherub, are mentioned over 90 times. They're primarily associated with holy spaces. For example, cherubim were fashioned and placed over the Ark of the Covenant. So look again in verse 14. He said, you are the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. Now that's an enigmatic phrase, but it may indicate that Satan was anointed by God and placed in the heavens, and he operated as an angel. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So Satan was a cherub, an angel created by God. He is a created being, but he is also a corrupted being. Keep reading in verse 15. He said, you were blameless in your ways until unrighteousness was found in you. What happened to make the devil the devil? Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. The devil became the devil because of pride. So look over a few pages in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. This describes his pride in greater detail. Verse 12, Isaiah 14. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Star of the morning is translated as Lucifer in the King James Version. The name means brightness or morning star. And then it says, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Verse 13, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will Raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. And then verse 15, and this is the kicker. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan wanted to be worshipped like God, and instead of God, so he was cast down out of heaven. And there are verses in the book of the Revelation that indicate a third of the angels joined him. Now that's his origin. I want you to see his operation. Sometimes we try to differentiate between a satanic attack, the influence of the world, or the lust of the flesh. That's because all three work in tandem. Satan is the tempter. He rules this world system, and he uses it to tempt our flesh. Satan and his demons are always at work, 
On the other hand, don't look for him behind every problem. If your kids are acting bad, it might be because they need a nap. If you're acting bad, you might need a nap. If you had a fender bender, it could be you were looking at your phone. But Satan and his demons are real. And I want you to see this morning just four areas where I think they're intensifying their attack today. The first one is this. They attack children. Now, I have a theory. I can't prove this. My guess is that since most people are saved while they're young, that's why Satan operates full force against children. And Acts chapter 16 illustrates this. Paul wrote in verse 16, excuse me, Luke wrote in verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. That poor girl was enslaved, maybe kidnapped or trafficked, just a child, and now a demon has possessed her. And while dabbling in the occult opens the door for possession, we often see children and adults in the gospel accounts, they're demonically possessed, and scripture indicates they did nothing to cause it. This demon is so cruel, it empowers her to tell the future with accuracy, thereby keeping her in bondage. She has no real home, no one to care for her. Now, Scripture mentions her only in passing, but this is one of the saddest stories in God's Word. And as I look out upon you, dear people, every one of you, children, parents, grandparents, you feel this attack today. He creates a world system that teaches our kids to base their self-worth on their appearance or their social status or their possessions. Or he'll feed into them that life is all about pleasure and self-gratification. Or he'll amplify this voice of self-condemnation. He's responsible for creating a culture that promotes the right body type and the right look. And it's usually a moving target. And if a young person doesn't have that right body type or that right look, then despair can set in. Or maybe they're ostracized or they have abusive or negligent parents. I heard a story about a negligent parent just before we stepped into the pulpit today. So feeling awkward and out of place... He tempts them with alcohol and drugs. That takes their mind off the pain of not fitting in, not looking right, not being popular, or being anxious. The next part I wrote, without thinking about the Joshua Project, but I think what I'm going to say, we're going to hear about some on Wednesday night. In the 1800s, he inspired a philosophy called Darwinism that teaches that human beings are not a creation of God. They're just an animal a product of billions of years of evolution. Animals exist to fulfill their desires and feelings, and since the devil controls the world system, he promotes and affirms these desires and feelings. For example, he's created a culture that has removed all barriers from fulfilling sexual desires, and then he perverts those sexual desires. He will also do anything to make God's word unpopular or regressive. He wants to keep the word of God from being implanted in the hearts of children while they're young. He'll do anything to prevent that. He'll tempt parents to be too busy, too distracted, put anything first. 
as long as it crowds out or diminishes God's word going into the hearts of children. Therefore, without God's word, or only a small amount, they grow up believing what the world tells them. Truth is relative. You can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and they're both true. Emotion drives decisions more than reason. Peers become primary reference points for life decisions. Not parents, not pastors, not God's word. Every one of you in here, every child, every person, is a special creation of God. Next week, you're going to see that every person has a soul that was made to relate to God. You were made to love and serve and enjoy and experience God. That part about God's love, many kids never hear that. I wonder if the slave girl ever did. In verse 18, Paul cast a demon out of that girl. We have no idea what happened afterward. Her slave masters undoubtedly discarded her because her ability to produce profit was gone. What happened to her? Now, Scripture does not finish the story of many people, but He can finish yours. If you are not saved, put your faith and trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so you can have eternal life. That's true for every child, every student, every person here. And then be baptized by immersion as a public testimony of that. Parents, put getting the Word of God in the hearts of your kids first. They're a temporary stewardship that God gave you, and we want to help you do that. We have Awana Children's Sunday School, VBS, Church Camp, Children's Church, Student Ministry. If I left something out, please forgive me. In the short time there, children, you can't get enough of God's Word into them. And this morning, if you would say yourself you're not a new creation in Christ and you're on the fence regarding belief, I want you to know that no demon can stop you from becoming a child of God. So number one, he attacks children. Number two, he affects nations. In Isaiah 14, the Bible says he weakened the nations. So look, if you would, at Daniel chapter 10. Now, I preached this about two months ago, but I'm going to briefly go back to it because it just fits too well. In Daniel chapter 10, the angel Gabriel wants to come to Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says there, The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Well, that prince was a demon. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So Gabriel was at war with a demon who ruled over Persia. And that verse goes on to say that the angel Michael came over to help him in the battle. Then in verse 20, Gabriel says, I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Those were clearly demons attacking those countries. And so, from the beginning, there are demonic forces at work in governments all across the world. They work through men and women that they control. So, when you read the news and you see governments make illegal decisions, pass wicked laws, wage unprovoked wars, genocides, ethnic cleansings, you know the devil's behind it. And today in China, Russia, North Korea, many Islamic nations, there's no real freedom. 
Chairman Mao murdered millions in China in the mid-20th century. People used to disappear in what they would call struggle sessions. In other words, if you had the wrong opinion, they would take you out in public and there would be a mob around you and they would scream at you and tell you what you did wrong. And you had to wear a, a chalkboard or something around your neck that explained what you did wrong. You made some kind of a statement that was against the state. And after that struggle session, you disappeared and no one ever heard from you again. Now, I have a nurse at St. Luke's who's an MK. Anybody know what an MK is? Yeah, missionary kid. She's a very young lady, about 8 to 10 years removed from China. We have great discussions. She said that the city she came from, which was the northern part of, of China, I couldn't remember it or pronounce it, millions of people though, she said still, sometimes someone would just disappear and no one would ask questions, not even family members, because you might suddenly disappear. And then you look at our nation and the recent pornographic scene on the White House lawn and the profligate spending of money. We need no further illustration or elaboration to see that Satan attacks nations. But number three, he destroys believers. Now Satan cannot put thoughts into your mind, but he can put temptations in front of you and let your flesh take it from there. And friends, these temptations usually don't come dressed up as obvious evil. So today we are tempted, every one of us, we're tempted to engage in triviality. Now what do I mean by triviality? I'll give you an example. I went to three different Walmarts today to find the yogurt that I like. I actually didn't do that. I never go to Walmart. But. <laughs> or I'll spend five weekends looking for the window blinds that I've always wanted. Or I'll spend three hours online to save $3 on a purchase. Even a conversation can center around trivia. Conversations sometimes around spiritual and biblical topics might seem too weighty. And there's so much evil around us that we tend to pursue trivia to take our mind off of us. Off of it, excuse me. God gives every believer a beautiful purpose in life. Once the devil loses your soul, he wants to distract you from that purpose at every stage of life. Friends, what is life for? Why are we alive? Why did God make you a Christian? It's to serve and love and enjoy and glorify Him. So He tempts us away from that with triviality. And then He deceives us with affirmation. With the advent of the internet, we can live in the echo chamber of our choosing. And human pride only wants to hear what it wants to hear. Isaiah chapter 30 says the people would say to the prophets, Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusion. Let us no more hear about the Holy One of Israel. There was a man named Thomas Cramner. He was a reformer. He was imprisoned and burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. He made a statement that I think is so profound. I love this quote. He said, What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And by the way, there will be a website and a teacher to affirm what that heart loves, and you never feel the need to repent. Now, absent that, 
Satan will tempt you in another way to distract you from your purpose. He will cause you to create a God in your mind who will never affirm anything you think or do. A God who's harsh and judgmental. And so you begin to think that the Christian life is about performance and its outward appearances. And His grace to you and His love for you never enter your mind. Years ago, many years ago, I hadn't been a Christian for very long. There was a man named Robert McGee who wrote a book called The Search for Significance. And he identified four areas in our life that all revolve around affirmation. He said, number one, we fall into the performance trap, needing our own affirmation based on extra-biblical standards we've created. Or we have an approval addiction. We have to have the affirmation of certain select people in our life, and we'll do anything to get it. Or we play the blame game. My problems, they can't be my fault. You have to affirm my sin because my problem always comes from someone else's sin, not mine. And then he said the fourth one was shame. And that is you feel like you can never gain God's approval. If Satan can't drive you in the ditch of liberalism, he'll wreck you in the ditch of legalism, he'll drive you off the cliff of fanaticism, or he'll stall you out in the desert of defeatism. So he tempts us with triviality and affirmation, but then there's also self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. This is the believer who's passive-aggressive with God. On the surface, he or she agrees with God's Word, but in reality, he or she is their own master. And this leads us to create a fictional God. It's a God who hates what I hate and loves what I love, and it encourages my selfishness. And we're all vulnerable to this. And here's what it'll often sound like. I don't need to, and just fill in the blank, I don't need to because I'm saved. I don't need to enter any of the disciplines of the Christian life. I'm saved. I mean, you even miss out. I don't even enter into any of the blessings of the Christian life because I'm saved. And our self-exaltation can blind us to not only how we can grieve or offend God, but it can keep us from noticing how our decisions affect other people. You and I never live in a vacuum, and we never sin in a vacuum. Everything I do affects you. Everything you do affects me. So if Satan can tempt us away in any of these areas, he successfully neutralized our given purpose. So he destroys Christians and he imitates God. To blind the, again, pay attention to this one. The darkness is descending. <laughs> we got an air conditioner out, we got lights to do what they want. There we go. And let there be light. I don't, I don't, this doesn't control the light. Oh, well, let me see. Nathan says it does. Here, I'm going to toss it to him. And when the lights go down, it's his fault. To blind the lost and deceive the saved, he imitates God in order to oppose God. God has his trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Satan has his trinity, the devil, the dragon, himself, the beast, which is the antichrist, and the false prophet. 
God has his kingdom. Satan has his kingdom called the domain of darkness in Colossians 1.13. God has his angels. Satan has his angels called demons. God has his throne. Revelation chapter 2 says Satan has his throne. In Revelation chapter 2, it was located in Pergamum. Satan is not omnipresent. So at this very moment, it stands to reason that he and his demonic throne are somewhere in this world. I've got a few ideas as to where. That alone ought to keep us on guard against his schemes. He has other imitations. God has his worship. God exists to be worshipped. Mankind exists to render worship. Yet, as Adrian Rogers said, anything you love more, serve more, fear more, value more than God is an idol. And what is idolatry but a way to rob God of worship? God has his churches. Satan has his churches in them. He, excuse me, he called them false apostles, false prophets, and false teachers. God has his faithful believers. Satan has false believers. Paul mentioned them in 1 Corinthians and Galatians. And finally, God has his gospel, which is a gospel of grace. And Satan's gospel is one of works, legalism, liberalism, or something other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we fight against these attacks of Satan? The armor of God in Ephesians 6 is very important, but I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6 for the unused, underused weapon in spiritual warfare. Matthew chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 13. It says, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't necessarily meant to be recited, but that's a good prayer right there. Because we are tempted and because we fall, first, we never look down at the world or anyone around us from a position of superiority. That would be hypocrisy. None of us perfectly fend off temptation. The truth is we live in constant danger. Any one of us could blow up our lives in 20 seconds. I think of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He didn't say, pray so that you won't be tempted. You live in a body of flesh that is always tempted. So let's watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation. So you're not captured or ensnared. So Jesus said, lead us, not lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we pray this, here's what we're praying. God, this power of evil is far greater than me, but it's not greater than you. So please come and do in my life what I cannot do myself. Even if we're a naturally self-disciplined person, we can't do it. In fact, a naturally self-disciplined person can really fall into this trap. And then we set ourselves up for a greater fall later. Lord, I know I can't do it, but I know you can do it through me. And do you know that when you fail and you fall, that he still delivers you from evil? He does it in two ways. Number one, he delivers us from failing to stick with the stewardship that he's given us. 
Now, let me illustrate what I mean by that. Peter said he would follow Jesus no matter what. Bless his heart. And soon thereafter, he publicly, repeatedly, and profanely denied Jesus. It might have taken that proverbial 20 seconds. So in Peter's mind, who was all or nothing, he disqualified himself as a follower of Jesus. He went back to fishing. But fishing wasn't what God called him to do. You and I fall into evil when we aren't seeking to fulfill the stewardship he's given us. Last week we saw that he's given each one of us a purpose, a calling to serve him in some way. Now those things can change over time, but we have a stewardship to serve him and live for him. And the illustration he gave was that he was away on a journey and you and I are to be alert, discharging that stewardship until he returns. And that stewardship isn't something that you say, well, I hope this will happen in the future. That stewardship is what is in front of you right now. So Jesus didn't leave Peter in the midst of his failure. He wasn't going to allow evil to rob Peter of his purpose. He restored him, he put him back into service, and he won't leave you in any kind of failure either. The second way he delivers us from evil is from saving our soul from hell. Jesus went to the cross and died for sinners like Peter and Jesus and me and you. And then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. If your trust is in him, sin never has the final word in your life. Never. You say, but you don't realize how often I fail him. Start talking the language of grace, not failure. He always restores you. He always forgives you. You're his child. He's not into your performance. He loves you. The greatest evil that can overtake a person is unbelief. Or that you believe in your head about Jesus, but not in your heart. Or you don't believe at all. So if that's you this morning, if you've never come to Christ, you might be hearing this and you're just tempted to walk away from all this. By the way, I was there at one point in my life, but Jesus gives up on no one. He doesn't give up on the so-called down and out. He doesn't give up on the so-called prideful, wealthy, and haughty. And I'm telling you, he doesn't give up on you. If you're not saved, if you're willing to humble yourself and believe, Jesus will bring you into God's family. He will make you a forever saved, forgiven child of him. And so if that's the case, it's not complicated. Repent of your sins and believe on him by faith. If you have questions about that, Nathan would be glad to talk to you. I would too. Kirk is gone today. But there are people all around you who'd love to have that conversation with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.